This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We have a little bit of light fair today as we are going to take a little pilgrimage together, uh, but not the pilgrimage you might be expecting. Uh, there's a new book from Ave Maria Press called A Catholic Pilgrimage Through American History, People and Places that Shaped the Church in the United States. We're talking today with the author, Dr. Kevin Schmeising. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. Sure. Thank you for this opportunity. You lecture on church history at Mount St. Mary's Seminary and School of Theology in Cincinnati, Ohio. And typically when we think of church history, we're thinking of patristics and counter-reformation. And here you're bringing in the church history of the United States, American church history. I'm curious about the connection between those two and what drew you to this American history project. Yeah, right. So let me give you a little background maybe first that will help. I went and got a doctorate. I studied history at the undergraduate level, and then I got a doctorate in American history from the University of Pennsylvania. So most of my training was not specifically in church history or even American Catholic history. Uh, so that's the background I brought educationally. But then in my final years of, of uh, graduate study, when I was working on my dissertation, I decided to do something in the field of Catholic history in the United States. And so that started me down that path. I've always been interested in Catholic history. I was a cradle Catholic, um, have, have been uh, serious about the faith. It's been an important part of my identity for as long as I can remember. Uh, so there was an inherent interest there, but I only kind of undertook it professionally, as I say, in those last couple of years of the dissertation phase. So Fast forward a few years, and uh, I'm, I'm back in the Cincinnati area, and I was asked to teach this class. My role in the seminary is actually teaching adults in their lay ecclesial ministry program. Okay. So I do that in the northern part of the archdiocese. So that provided me this teaching outlet uh, for this longstanding interest in the history of the Catholic people in the United States in particular, although the course that I teach is church history broadly. So, you know, I cover it uh, from the beginning, from the time of Christ on. So that's the background, the education, the interest that I bring. And so you might say that, that my life embodies this kind of uh, combination of American history more generally, the conventional narrative of American history, which I learned in school, uh, which I've studied, which I've researched, but also then the Catholic dimension of that story, the the story of the church as an institution, the the Catholic people um, as individuals in in the context of American life. And so this book really expresses that combination because I try to build on the typical themes uh, of American history, some of the important people, events uh, will be very familiar to, to the average American, you know, the Washington Monument, I have a chapter about the Washington Monument, a chapter about the Lincoln assassination. Um, uh, and and then I, I tell the Catholic dimensions of those stories, which generally speaking, are not widely known, even among Catholics uh, in the United States. So I'm hoping that I'm bringing this kind of, uh, uh, this particular interest that might be, uh, you know, of interest to Catholics specifically um, but connecting it to this wider American story. Well, and I'm, I'm terribly interested in this because the book goes in some directions you wouldn't necessarily expect it to go. You know, we, we would expect 
to see uh, St. John Neumann. We would expect to see Philadelphia. We would expect to see certainly uh, a big portion of Maryland and New York and those big centers where we know that the church is strong today. Um, but they don't get the, the, the amount of focus that you might otherwise expect. Instead, we're going through uh, South Bend, Indiana. We're spending some time in Bardstown, Kentucky. We're spending time uh, in, in Maine and uh, New Orleans and, and places that if you're from there, maybe you, maybe you have a sense of the Catholic history there. But a lot of times we tend to focus on maybe the recent past and not the, the foundings uh, and the kind of the, the seeds of what we have today. Yeah, there were a number of points there that are, are really good and important. So first of all, uh, there are 27 chapters in this book. So I go to 27 different places around the United States. And yet, and I was running right up against the word limits of, that the press gave me. Yeah. So <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't do any more. Uh, and yet we could easily do 27 more chapters, right? Or more than that. So you mentioned Philadelphia. I spent five years in Philadelphia uh, in graduate school. Great Catholic historical sites there. I, I really wanted to do chapter in Old St. Joe's mm -hmm. in, in Philadelphia, the historic uh, church there in downtown right near Independence Hall. Uh, so a lot of other things that kind of got left out of this book. Uh, God willing, if there's a second volume, we can cover some of those places. But but I did make an effort to uh, be geographically diverse. And Certainly. so that's why, you know, I already have, I got several chapters on the East Coast um, and I wanted to spread it across across the United States. And exactly as you say, I, I, I have the same observation, which is um, I think most readers, probably most Catholic readers who know something about their faith, something about church history, will pick this up and they'll be familiar with one or two or three chapters, maybe. Uh, they'll be familiar maybe with, with their local, uh, you know, their local shrine or their local Catholic celebrity. Um, and they'll say, oh yeah, I already knew most of the stuff in that chapter. Although even in those cases, I think there may be tidbits in chapters that, that will surprise readers or, or bring something new to the table. But what's unique is that it covers all of these places across the United States. So even if you know two or three chapters or have some familiarity with those stories, there are going to be places you're not familiar with. There's going to be stories you're not familiar with, people that you haven't met before. Um, so I really try to bring what may be stories that have been considered to be or have been restricted to local interest and try to bring those stories to to a broader national audience. The push toward re recapturing our Catholic identity is, I think, a fairly recent one here in the United States. We've spent so much time trying to kind of normalize, oh, we're just like you, take a look, we, we're, we're, if we weird Catholics, we're not as weird as you think, that sometimes we bury our story and we miss those things that are unique to us. And I've seen maybe in the last even eight to 10 years, a resurgence of uh, looking back and recapturing those things that make us unique and embracing, quote unquote, the weirdness of Catholicism. Uh, and owning it as our own rather than kind of saying, well, that, that's the part that we keep behind the back. Yeah, right. Good point. Uh, one really interesting question is, why is it the case that the Catholic dimension of the American story has not been more widely told? Why is it not more widely known, um, especially among Catholics? You know, I went through Catholic schools, good Catholic schools, mm -hmm. uh, through elementary and, and, and high school levels. Um, and I never really learned much about the Catholic story of, of the American narrative, the, the Catholic dimension of it. Um, and 
you know, there may be a lot of different things going on there, one of which may be exactly what you're talking about, that this, this dimension has been deliberately suppressed, even by Catholics themselves, to some extent, hidden, um, because we don't want to draw attention to the fact that Catholics are different uh, in some way uh, from their fellow Americans. Instead, <clears throat> we've been so concerned with emphasizing the sameness, the way we fit in. And there's, there's a historical reason for that, too, which comes out in this book. And, and several of the chapters uh, talk about Catholic immigration, which is a huge part of the story of the church in the United States, uh, immigrants from places like Ireland and Germany and Poland and Italy, and so on and so forth. Um, and because so many Catholics throughout the history of the church in this country have been immigrants, um, I think there has been a concern to downplay the difference and to emphasize that, no, we're not, we're not Italian, we're not Polish, we're not Irish, um, and we're not too Catholic either. We, we can fit in in, in, in Protestant America. Um, and so maybe, you know, one part of the collateral damage of that has been um, this downplaying of the Catholic dimension of the American story, and therefore, at this point, an ignorance uh, of the Catholic dimension of of the story of the United States. I live up in the Pacific Northwest and there are a number of, of places, even secular places, uh, or, or at least places widely in the secular eye that bear the name of some of our saints, right? We have, uh, the, the Cabrini complex for St. Francis Cabrini, the hospital complex up there. But I dare say most people passing by that every day, don't know the story of the woman behind it. Uh, same with St. Catherine Drexel, uh, the same with some of our, uh, our more prominent U.S. Um, historical Catholic figures. And th they're just kind of the tip of the iceberg. They're the ones who ended up with their name on a building. But there are people like this dotting the landscape of Catholic history uh, that maybe you're only known to to a single diocese, and still their stories are left largely uncaptured. You've written some of them down here, but it's also incumbent upon us as members of the communion of saints to become familiar with them. Yeah, very true. Um, <clears throat> and I, my personal story is again a case in point. Um, I studied American history at a high level for a number of years before I became aware at all of the important role that Catholic women religious, sisters, nuns played in American history generally, but especially in westward expansion in, in the Pacific Northwest place you're talking about, in the Southeast, in, in, in the Southwest, sorry, uh, in, in other places across, across the plains and so forth. Uh, Catholic sisters were the ones in many, many places who established the very first social and educational institutions, charitable institutions. Uh, that, that serve those places. So as you mentioned, I talk about a few of those, uh, certainly not exhaustive, but chapter 15, uh, I, I use uh, the Southwest Washington Medical Center up in your neck of the woods um, in, in, the, in uh, Southern Washington uh, to talk about the, the Providence Sisters and their role in, in particular in healthcare, but also in other fields in that area. Um, I do talk about <clears throat> uh, St. Francis Cabrini in chapter 24. And she's a great example because, of course, her name is all over the place. Her right. legacy is all over the place. Um, Cabrini helped found uh, institutions in many, many cities across the United States, from the East Coast, across the Midwest, Chicago, uh, Denver, and extending into the Northwest. 
Um, so, so these, these sisters, uh, the, those stories, yeah, need to be told as well. And we need to, uh, as, as much as we have genuinely to be ashamed about in the Catholic story of America, uh, especially as we know over the last couple of decades, uh, you know, there's a dark side to the Catholic story. As much as that's true, uh, and we shouldn't ignore that or, or, or brush that under the rug, it's also true that we have a lot to be proud of and a lot of that we can we can take ownership of and, and say, yeah, the Catholics, they, they played an important role uh, in building building up the United States in a positive way. Mm-hmm. The book is A Catholic Pilgrimage Through American History, available now on Ave Maria Press. Kevin, everyone has a, a, a genesis, a origin story, as it were. You spent a lot of time studying uh, history at a high level. What was the first story that arrested your attention and awakened you to the Catholic thread weaving throughout American history? Oh, wow. Uh, The first story. Well, I tell some of the origin story for this book in the introduction to the book, actually. And I guess I would, I would place it. I I don't know if this would qualify as the very first one. Um, And I don't tell this story specifically, but I mentioned the fact that, that our family, you know, our, our typical, kind of American middle-class family took vacations when I was a youngster, more or less every summer. Uh, We went somewhere. And one of those places we went when I was young, maybe 10 or 12 years old, we went to St. Augustine, Florida. Um, And that's the first and only time I've been to St. Augustine. And I I certainly did not have a full appreciation uh, of the history of the church in the United States or even the history of St. Augustine at that point. But that experience, visiting the Castillo San Marcos, visiting the Basilica of St. Augustine downtown, uh, visiting other historic sites there, which had a Catholic dimension to them, you know, I became cognizant of that. And it certainly um, uh, piqued my interest and and spurred my imagination uh, onto the study of history. Um, and so I guess you could say the origin of, of appreciating, understanding, and wanting to know more about uh, the role of Catholics in the American story maybe began with those early experiences visiting some of those places. And that, again, is very much reflected in this book, because um, as you know, having the book there in front of you, the, the 27 chapters begin with or focus on a particular place. Mm-hmm. They talk about a place that, that you can still visit today. Uh, some of them more kind of conventional pilgrimage sites like shrines, but others, you know, just uh pretty humble uh, grave sites or, or historical markers or statues or whatever, um, but in some way, shape, or form, reflect, point to uh, something significant that happened in the Catholic past, in the, in the American Catholic past at that particular site. So visiting some of those places myself has helped to, to spur me to learn more about these places and to tell the stories of, of a lot of other places that I haven't actually visited, but that I recognize the significance of. And you bring up a good point with these physical locations, because this is a great book to have on hand when you're about to take a road trip. Uh, Pull it out and say, okay, our path goes through this place. What sites, what Catholic sites can we stop by? Because you mentioned that it was a childhood trip that caught your imagination. Uh, we want to. We want our children to catch those those same bits of imagination to understand their Catholic identity and their Catholic heritage, uh, not only writ large with saint books and other stories that help them to really understand and, and grapple with their faith, but also these things that give them 
this rooted sense of your faith has substance here as well. Yeah, right. I do think that the book can be read profitably, even if you're not actually using it as you travel around the country. Certainly. But I, but I completely agree that it, it can be used uh, in a very meaningful way as a kind of travel guide. Uh, and I, I have a, a good story along those lines. We, um, this was after the book had gone to print. So I had my author copies in hand, but it had not yet released. It released just, uh, just about a month ago on April 8th. Uh, so I had an author copy. We had to attend a family wedding in Denver. And as you mentioned earlier, I live in Ohio. So we were on our way back from Denver as a family after this wedding. And as I talk about in the introduction, I, I following the, the family tradition, I like to find places of Catholic significance uh, along our routes. So we found a place that was in my book that I had not yet visited, which is uh, Quincy, Illinois. And that revolves around the story of Servant of God, Augustus Tolton, who's the first mm-hmm. identifiably African-American priest to serve in the United States. And so I've, since I first came across the story of Augustus Tolton uh, a number of years ago now, I've just been fascinated by him. Um, I've been edified by his story. He's kind of a hero of mine. So I really wanted to go visit his gravesite, which is in Quincy. Uh, so we were driving, uh, as I say, back from Denver, and my son and I took turns reading that chapter aloud to the rest of the family. And a few minutes later, we arrived at his grave, at his grave site. Well, as we're reading it, we're crossing the Mississippi River, hmm. which if you know the story of Augustus Tolton, he escaped from slavery with his mother in a rowboat across the Mississippi River uh, from Missouri to Illinois. So, you know, we're reading that story as we're crossing the Mississippi, M- much easier for us to cross the river at this point, across a bridge in our vehicle, uh, rather than in a rowboat with, uh, with slave catchers in pursuit. Um, but it's just kind of, you know, really brought that story home to the whole family. And then his, his story is just, is just poignant, the obstacles he overcame uh, to become a Catholic priest, to be ordained, and then to serve uh, especially the Black Catholic community in Illinois, in, in Chicago, and in Quincy. And a few minutes after, you know, uh, finishing that story, then we arrive at the gravesite and we find the, the concrete cross that marks his grave uh, that had been described in the chapter that I wrote. So it was just it was a memorable experience uh, for all of us, and exactly in the way you describe, hoping to, to, to build memories, to build experiences, and to, to catch the imagination of our children for another generation. I, speaking of road trips, as I cross multiple states driving around, one of the things that's very interesting to me is seeing the, the prominent architecture that pops up. Uh, and specifically, I, I think of driving out to see my mother-in-law from Colorado used to have to drive through the state of, uh, of Kansas and through the state of Kansas, you see all of these kind of neo-Gothic churches just kind of popping around and you see the, the German Catholicism that came through, as you mentioned, through immigration. Uh, And we would stop uh, at one specific church, uh, St. Fidelis there in the otherwise known as the cathedral on the plains uh just a beautiful church run by the capuchins and just get a a tiny little sliver of the sense of its history but the the idea of using catholic sites is kind of you got to get out of the car sometime you've got to have rest stops using those as not only a rest for the trip but also kind of a spiritual refreshment and connection and not to say again that this is only for road trips but to say that I think that's a particular time where we have the ability to make connections that 
we wouldn't otherwise make. There's that, that kind of physical presence that makes a difference. Yeah, you and I are really connecting on this. St. Fidelis, I knew it well. In fact, on the trip out to Denver that I just mentioned, we stopped at St. Fidelis on our way out. So <laughs> it was Quincy on the way back, but St. Fidelis on our way out. That could have been a chapter in the book. Uh, that was during Lent when we were going out there. So we stopped at that church and, and prayed the Stations of the Cross on our way. Um, yeah, exactly right. Um, I think I've, I've been fascinated. Th th this concept that I've kind of developed over the last uh, number of years, which again is expressed in this book. And as you described, that buildings tell stories. Um, mm -hmm. I guess I first became aware of this maybe when I, I did some traveling around Europe. I had the opportunity as an undergraduate to spend some time in Europe uh, studying in Austria. And we traveled on the weekends, um, places like you know the Basilica of St. Peter in Rome. We're studying European history at the same time that uh, that we're visiting these places, and it really just uh, it brings it all to life. And I realized the way that these buildings themselves tell stories. You mentioned the architecture, this neo-Gothic architecture that you can see, you know, on the plains of Kansas, telling the story that uh, that these German Catholic craftsmen uh, came to the United States and brought their skills with them, and brought their religious sensibility with them, and built these churches. Um, the story of Catholic architecture in the United States is a story in and of itself, uh, because if you look, actually, if you, if you find uh, churches that were built, say, before the heavy immigration, the Irish Catholic and German Catholic immigration of the 1840s and 50s, a lot of those churches, there aren't a lot of them that survive, but those that do, a lot of them are not built in the Gothic style. Uh, they're built in a federal style or a Renaissance style. There's different terms for it, but they're basically fit, uh, basically built to fit kind of the typical American architectural style at the time. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of Catholics wanting to fit in in the American context. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was the predominant uh, mode of church design, including among Catholics uh, during the early 19th century, late 18th, early 19th century. And then you got an increasingly European immigrant church. And that's when you saw the rise uh, of the Gothic style churches that might be considered European, although they've become very much American uh, right. over the course of being a part of the American landscape, uh, you know, for the last uh, now nearly 200 years. What's of particular interest, uh, you're talking about these immigrant communities coming in and building according to their, their culture and their sensibilities is how enduring those sensibilities are. Because I spent some time in Oklahoma attending a parish that had been founded and run by uh, Polish Capuchins. And there were no more Polish people left in that community, and the Capuchins have long gone. And yet some of the, uh, the particular devotions that they brought with them endured and there's still a very polish flavor to this nobody polish attending church and i think that that's a, a beautiful picture of how we hand down the faith but also just a really intriguing picture of uh, of how history leaves its mark yeah great yes that it is a beautiful example of the way in which um physical structures but also cultural structures can endure long after <clears throat> not only individuals, but even, you know, groups of people, uh, ethnicities uh, have departed the scene, the way in which those can endure. And, and as you say, uh, 
also a picture of the way different cultures come together and merge. Not that any cultures are completely abrogated or disappear, but they they adapt and they accommodate and they merge with other cultures and all of that kind of weaves together into into the tapestry that is that is the contemporary American Catholic Church. And this happens in all kinds of ways across across history and uh, across faith traditions uh, and and outside faith traditions and so forth. But it's especially uh, recognizable, noticeable in the American Catholic content context uh, within Catholicism because because the American Catholic Church is, as America more broadly, you know, it's been called the melting pot, right? That metaphor that's been used over and over. Well, that's true of the American Catholic Church as well. So many ethnicities and cultural backgrounds coming together um, to make up the American Church. And so you have these uh, different cultures and different devotions, uh, you know, processions, devotions to different saints, um, all of these coming together in in the American Church to make up what is today uh, the American Catholic Church, and that's especially noticeable, I think, um, in in the in the larger cities where you often have uh, these ethnicities uh, close by each other. And uh, you know, to take the example of Philadelphia again, I remember uh, there was one street in particular. It was one street. Uh, within probably a quarter of a mile, maybe a half a mile, there were three different large Catholic churches, which seemed to make no sense. But again, once you understand the history of it, uh, you realize that it's three different ethnicities. Uh, I think there were Poles there, Irish, maybe one other, uh, maybe maybe Germans. And they all you know, wanted their own particular expression of the faith in, in their particular parish, in their particular church. And so you had these three churches built in close proximity. But eventually, over time, uh, these groups, they intermarry and, you know, they go to each other's churches. Um, and it all eventually, as I say, weaves together into the tapestry that is uh, the contemporary American Catholic Church. We're talking today with Dr. Kevin Schmeezing, author of the brand new book, A Catholic Pilgrimage Through American History people and places that shaped the church in the United States. It's available right now wherever fine books are sold through Ave Maria Press. And now it's your turn. Come and be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. You can also find us on Twitter where the handle is at outside the walls. And what I would love to hear from you today, the, the addition to our conversation and our story so I would love to hear that story from American history that has captured your attention. Maybe it's a, a place like it was with me and St. Fidelis. Maybe for you, it's a local Catholic saint to be, right? Whether that's a Blessed Solanus Casey, Blessed Stanley Rother, Servant of God Theo Bowman, or someone that maybe the majority of us have not yet heard about. Come and share their story because it's building your faith, giving you hope, helping draw you towards holiness. And when you share that story, you also share that experience with us. Again, share that over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Kevin Schmeezing, and he's going to give us one of the stories that has made an impact on his life. You're not going to want to miss it, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today about American history and the Catholic uh, history, the Catholic role, the Catholic thread that weaves throughout our history. Uh, The book is a Catholic pilgrimage through American history, people and places that shaped the church in the United States. Uh, We're talking with the author, Dr. Kevin Schmeising, about this book and about Catholic history. Um, you mentioned that you go through 20, I think 27 different locations here. In That's this right. Book. Yes. Everywhere from the East coast to the West coast to Nebraska and everywhere in between. Um, I'm always interested in the lesser known stories, the stories that, that we don't expect the stories that maybe only, uh, are known to one central location. You know, we talked earlier about St. Francis Cabrini going coast to coast herself in her ministry. But there are those same kinds of heroes that make a singular impact on a singular location. Uh, and I'm curious if any in the book really stood out to you as, uh, as someone that we all really need to know about. Obviously, everyone in the book we all really need to know about, but yeah, that's 27 right. <laughs> of them, they can go pick up the book. Uh, is there one you want to share with us today? Yeah, maybe the one I, I'm, I would think of is uh, Father Demetrius Galitzin, who, whose story is mostly takes place in western, central and western Pennsylvania, uh, the Latrobe area. Some Catholics have heard about him. There have been a few biographies uh, written about him, but it still seems to me not a whole lot and not what he deserves. Uh, his, his personal story is in and of itself fascinating because uh, it begins in Europe. He's actually a, a Russian prince. He's part of the Russian nobility, uh, is raised in the Russian Orthodox faith. And then his mother ends up converting to Catholicism. He converts to Catholicism. And um, <clears throat> on his way, I believe it was while he was on his way to the United States, he was on a boat and had some interaction with, with Catholic priests on that ship and ends up deciding to become a priest himself. So not only becomes Catholic, but, uh, but also decides to be ordained. And I think he was maybe the second uh, Catholic priest ordained in the United States and then goes to work in all places at, at the, at the frontier of uh, the Pennsylvania frontier in what was then the wilderness, you know, Penn's woods, Pennsylvania and Western Pennsylvania. Uh, so from uh, from a Russian prince to a, a missionary uh, in the wilderness of Pennsylvania. And his missionary work, his work among the Catholic people of Pennsylvania and building up the institutions, the Catholic institutions of Western Pennsylvania, especially Catholic parishes, really laid the foundation for what became an enduring Catholic enclave in Western Pennsylvania. And this is still a, a heavily Catholic part of the United States. Um, the Basilica of St. Michael there in Latrobe is, is the place that I focus on uh, in this chapter, a really beautiful church uh, in the Latrobe area. Um, there's a Franciscan university uh, in that area. There's a lot of Catholic institutions. The Franciscans in particular have been active there. Um, and all of that kind of stemming from this work in the very early 19th century, uh, by this Russian prince turned Catholic priest, Demetrius Galitzin. Well, and just a couple of weeks ago here on the show, we had a, a Benedictine from the Archabbey of St. Vincent, and which is also right there in Latrobe. And so that kind of enduring Catholic culture that now makes impact 
far beyond uh, its own geographic area. I think the importance of of history, and specifically understanding our Catholic history, can be best summed up by going outside of Catholic history uh, to St. Ignatius of Loyola, who was a soldier and doing... uh, doing his best to be well-respected and well-thought-of and, and just an up-and-comer who was sidelined by a war that he was in, got hit by a cannonball. Everyone probably knows this story. And he spent some time in convalescence, and then he was healed up, and he was quite a vain person. So he, he healed up, and he stood up out of bed and realized that his legs had healed at different lengths, and he thought of all of the clothes that he wouldn't be able to wear, and so he had his leg broken again so that they could relengthen it so that he would, you know, be even as he walked. Uh, and so in that convalescence, it was reading the stories of the saints, that, or, or put another way, reading Catholic history that captured his imagination that let him see that the heroes that he had been idolizing were nothing in compared to the heroes of the Catholic faith. And that was the, the, the moment that profoundly changed his life and took him from being Ignatius of Loyola and put him on the trajectory of being Saint Ignatius of Loyola and giving us a, a massive missionary order uh, that sp- Bond from being stuck in bed, having nothing better to do but to read the lives of uh, the saints and the life of Jesus. And I think that there's still benefit to reading the lives of the saints. We have tons of books that you can do that in. But there's also a sense of knowing our Catholic history that's a little bit closer to home, the stories that uh, make sense to our history. I started off actually reading in the middle of the book, because that's uh, that's kind of the way I operate. I, I opened up the table of contents and I said, oh, Bardstown, Kentucky, I'm going there. I spent time in that area. Uh, it's interesting to me. Um, and the story that you paint there is fascinating. And it's extremely accessible. It's well-cited. Uh, and, and I think that it just is indicative of all of these stories, that they can tell us so much about not only the region, not only the the specific individuals that had influence, but also something deeply important about our faith, because the history draws us into saying, little choices matter, and my little choices matter, and they take us on and, and make our choices maybe a little bit more front of mind. Yeah, once again, so many great points there. So you started off talking about the saints, you know, if uh, uh, speaking about the influences in my own life, I would have to go back to, uh, I don't even know <clears throat> how old I was when this happened, because it was before my memory. But at some point, uh, my parents gave me a copy of Butler's Lives of the Saints. And I began reading a saint every day, there was a saint for every day of the year. So I read a saint that was part of my morning routine. And that would be definitely among the influences I would cite that uh, that not only influenced my faith life, but also captured my historical imagination and set me on the path that led me eventually to this book. Um, ever since then, I've been fascinated by the lives of the saints and, and not only for the purposes of, of edification and enhancement of the faith life, as you describe, but also, as you mentioned, for 
their historical importance. I mean, simply from an historical point of view, the saints are, are world renowned, world shaking influences on our history. And I use the saints extensively when I teach my church, my course uh, in church history. I actually use the saints kind of like I use places in this book. I, I, I talk about a life of a saint and then uh, and explore the Catholic story, the, the history that, that, uh, that arises out of uh, that particular saint's life. And so <clears throat> um, this book, going back to this book specifically, you're right, we, it, it focuses on the stories of these individuals and what these uh, individual lives uh, have to tell us. And I do think it's important I've experienced this myself. Again, personally, it's important to, to look at saints, or even if not canonized saints, simply um, edifying important, interesting lives that are, that are close to home, because these are folks who lived, you know, not a world away, not centuries away, but these are folks who lived, you know, in some cases within the last few decades, or, or we know people who remember uh, you know, remember the lives of these people or have, who have some personal connection uh, to the lives of these people. <clears throat> and these are folks who lived, you know, in our own neighborhoods or in our own cities or in places that, that we visit on vacation or whatever the, the case may be. These kind of, uh, th these folks have a tangibility, you know, a closeness mm -hmm. to us, a proximity to our own experience that I think uh, really lends itself to, to being more meaningful or more, more obviously and more immediately relevant to our own lives. Uh, and so uh, I, I do tell the stories of a few saints in, in this book, although, um, as you noticed, I also try to highlight places or people who may not be as well known. Yeah. Uh, once a person is canonized, Catholics tend to pay attention to them, right? <laughs> Which is as it should be. Uh, but there are also a lot of really interesting um, and and holy people, I think, who have not been canonized. Maybe they're somewhere on the path to sainthood, but have not been canonized. Or maybe for whatever reason, you know, that cause for canonization has never been opened. And yet these people also uh, have, have something to teach us and their lives have something to show us. And so I do tell some of those stories as well. Um, and Bardstown is an example of that. Uh, there are a lot of interesting, <clears throat> edifying people in that story at Bardstown, um, I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm, I can't think of any of those who's uh, who who are canonized saints, or even maybe uh, whose cause for for canonization has been introduced. Maybe I'm missing someone. Um, and, and yet, these are you know interesting and edifying stories. These stories from history have a very interesting power as well, though. Uh, they can be edifying. They can help us to see uh, our commonalities with those who have come before, and and kind of bolster our understanding of who we are, but they can also challenge us. Specifically, we've talked mostly here about the story of, of immigrants, those who have brought their Catholicism with them, but there's also a rich story of Catholicism in the indigenous population that often gets overlooked, and you don't overlook it here in the book. You've got uh, specifically the story of Nicholas Black Elk uh, and the story of Wounded Knee, which I think, you know, growing up in American history, this is not the story that I was taught, right? There's a specific narrative that we hear in class. We look at the differences between us and Nicholas Black Elk and us and the Lakota people. But here in this book, you're pointing to some of those things that we share in common in connection with them. 
Yeah, right. This is a point of emphasis. Um, whenever I talk about history, American history, church history, whatever, um, I always like to talk about the points of commonality, because to me, that's what strikes me. Yes, there are there are lots of differences. And if you go back a century or two or five or 10 uh, in church history, uh, you're, you're struck at the difference, the different ways people lived, dressed, talked, and so forth. But what really strikes me is how similar people are across the centuries, across time, and across places. Um, allowing for differences in language, you know, you see the same kind of concerns. You, you see parents struggling with children. You see priests who are living good lives and other priests who are living bad lives and who need to be reformed, right? You see, you see all the same kinds of things uh, that we experience as 21st century Americans. So it's very true that there are these points of commonality. Um, yeah, that chapter, chapter 21, uh, on wounded knee and all the, on the various personalities and Catholic institutions and figures who are connected to it. Um, Nicholas Black Elk, a very important figure. Again, one of those maybe not as widely known as, say, St. Kateri Tekawitha, who's the Native American, all, all American Catholics focus on because she's been canonized. Uh, Nicholas Black Elk, maybe, maybe someday, his cause has been introduced, so maybe someday. Uh, but he's a fascinating figure because when his when he was he he, he was there uh, for the Battle of Wounded Knee, uh, actually wounded uh, during that battle. Um, but he was a, a Catholic convert and became a Catholic catechist and very much devoted to his faith. And when his story was was kind of rediscovered as as American historians and Americans more generally were uh, revisiting the Native American story and realizing that it wasn't bad Indians against good cowboys, right? It wasn't that kind of old uh, stereotypical American story that it was more complicated than that. Uh, they focused on Nicholas Black Elk and they kind of saw him as, as an avatar, as a representative of traditional Native American religion and culture. And he was in some respects, but he was actually a devout Catholic. And so, and, and so that's a, that's a way in which, uh, or an example of the way in which the picture can, can be distorted a bit by, by maybe the contemporary concerns that we're bringing to, uh, you know, to a particular figure. Um, and in fact, Black Elk is a great example of the enculturation of the Catholic faith, specifically in the American context, because he never felt that he was abandoning or, or denying completely his uh, his Native American background, culture, faith. Instead, it was being fulfilled. It was being completed in the Catholic faith, uh, which is exactly the way you know Christians, Catholics uh, have been talking about the faith uh, ever since the evangelization of the first century. Uh, right, the old law is not uh, abrogated or done away with. Instead, it's fulfilled in the new law. Uh, so I think Nicholas Black, a great example of that, uh, of genuine. Catholic enculturation in the American situation. The book is called A Catholic Pilgrimage Through American History, People and Places that Shape the Church in the United States. We mentioned earlier this would be a great book for road trips. I tell you, another great location for this is uh, something to read to the kids before bed. Uh, sit down and let them know the history uh, and that, that they are the heirs to. Uh, we've been talking today with the author, Dr. Kevin Schmeezing. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, TL. I appreciate it. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Kevin Schmeezing, or you want to go back and listen to today's episode again, or share it with your friends on social media, 
Have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. There you can find the whole list of every show we've ever done. Just click on the guest list up at the top and find the guest you want to hear. Click on their name and it'll open up all the times they've appeared on the show. Or if you want to listen in reverse chronological order, you just keep hitting that more button when you get to the bottom of the page and it'll add new episodes on until eventually you get to the end. Now, history is a little bit harder to get to the end of than maybe the archives of our show. Uh, And I say that to say that there's always more to the story. And that's true of this week's episode as well, as there is more to our conversation with Dr. Kevin Schmeezing available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air, and it's very easy to become a part of that. Simply go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link at the top uh, of the navigation bar, top right-hand side, and then go take a look around. You can catch a couple of extra segments. We've put a couple of those free up in recent weeks, and there you can get a sense for the kinds of things that our support community gets each and every week. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, biblical commentaries, ecclesial documents, and so much more. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Today's reading from Scripture comes from the Gospel of Matthew. We read this on the optional memorial of John of Avila on May 10th. Jesus said to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its taste, with what can it be seasoned? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city set on a mountain cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and then put it under a bushel basket. It is set on a lampstand where it gives light to all in the house. Just so, your light must shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your heavenly Father. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law until all things have taken place. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys and teaches these commandments will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That reading comes again from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. This relates to our conversation today because those who we've been talking about, those who have left their mark on the history of the church, both in this book in American history, but also throughout all of our saint books and throughout, you know, not only recent Catholic history, but also all the way back to the time of Christ, these are the folks who were obeying this command of Christ, hearing those words that they were the salt of the earth, that they were the light of the world, and that by obeying those commandments, they would be considered greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This, this was their kind of their marching orders. 
I don't know that anyone who became a saint or anyone who made a profound impact on their region or their community did so with the expectation that they were going to change the world, that it was going to be the, the shaking thing that made the, the, the huge difference for everyone. Rather, I think that they were looking at their specific sphere of influence. Can I season, can I be the salt uh, to preserve and to season those things that are immediately around me? I think maybe this is a, a result of uh, of. Disney, maybe, perhaps, you know, we talk about the Scooby-Doo paradigm on here a lot, that, that everything can be explained away. There's got to be a logical explanation for everything. But I also think that there's this, uh, maybe it, it's unique to America, but maybe it's unique to our time and space where we think that we are the main character, not only in our story, but in the major story, and that the actions that, that we do are going to be somehow world-shaping I think it's good for us to, to realize the level of influence we have, to be realistic about it, but also not to underestimate it. That our small choices, the smiles that we give, the, the, uh, the way that we are able to share God's love in a very tangible way, those things make a difference. It might make a difference on a small scale, but that small scale has a way of rippling out in and expanding its influence over time. And so I want to encourage you that the example that was left for us by the saints, by the servants of God, by those who have gone before us is a good one and one to emulate, a way that we can focus on those who are immediately around us and take seriously our role as being light and salt the light of the world that, that helps give perspective and illuminate dangers and paths and the salt of the earth, that thing that preserves and seasons and gives flavor. Let's take up that charge and make a difference in our communities right now for the next generation. Continuing on that same theme, we get to our reading from Church History, which comes from St. Bede the Venerable, from a commentary on the first letter of Peter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This praise was given long ago by Moses to the ancient people of God, and now the apostle Peter rightly gives it to the Gentiles, since they have come to believe in Christ, who as the cornerstone has brought the nations together in the salvation that belonged to Israel. Peter calls them a chosen race because of their faith, to distinguish them from those who, by refusing to accept the living stone, have themselves been rejected. They are a royal priesthood because they are united to the body of Christ, the supreme king and true priest. As sovereign, he grants them his kingdom, and as high priest, he washes away their sins by the offering of his blood. Peter says that they are a royal priesthood. They must always remember to hope for an everlasting kingdom and to offer God the sacrifice of a blameless life. They are also called a consecrated nation, a people claimed by God as his own, in accordance with the Apostle Paul's explanation of the prophet's teaching. My righteous man lives by faith, but if he draws back, I will take no pleasure in him. But we, he says, 
are not the sort of people who draw back and are lost. We are those who remain faithful until we are saved. In the Acts of the Apostles, we read, The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Thus, through the blood of our Redeemer, we have become a people claimed by God as his own. As in ancient times, the people of Israel were ransomed from Egypt by the blood of a lamb. In the next verse, Peter also makes a veiled allusion to ancient history and explains that this story is to be spiritually fulfilled by the new people of God, so that, he says, they may declare his wonderful deeds. Those who were freed by Moses from slavery in Egypt sang a song of triumph to the Lord after they had crossed the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army had been overwhelmed. In the same way, now that our sins have been washed away in baptism, we too should express fitting gratitude for the gifts of heaven. The Egyptians, who oppress the peoples of God and who can also stand for darkness or trials, are an apt symbol of the sins that once oppressed us, but have now been destroyed in baptism. The deliverance of the children of Israel and their journey to the long-promised land correspond with the mystery of our redemption. We are making our way toward the light of our heavenly home with the grace of Christ leading us and showing us the way. The light of his grace was also symbolized by the cloud and the pillar of fire, which protected the Israelites from darkness throughout their journey and brought them by a wonderful path to their promised homeland. That reading comes from the commentary on the first letter of Peter by St. Bede the Venerable. And here we see this, this call back. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. We're continuing that thread of being called to a, a specific thing. You're the light of the world. You're a royal priesthood, right? Here we see this chosenness is for others. It's not merely for our own good. Rather, we are called to live a life that benefits others. Salt isn't for itself. In fact, if you were to get a handful of salt and just, you know, toss it back, it would not be a pleasant experience. The, the salt finds its fulfillment when it is accompanying and enhancing something else, someone else, some other thing. The light is not light for its own sake, but the light illuminates all that's around it and serves those who need to see. And so, too, the priest is not a priest for himself, we who are called to be a royal priesthood. Rather, the priest offers sacrifices and makes reconciliation possible. That's what we're called to do for the whole world, for the sake of those around us, to make a difference in history moving forward so that we may declare the marvelous works of God who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Brandy Carey and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link and join their numbers. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.